Shotcast, the podcast at the end of the universe, with James Bamber, Monique Henson, Indy Leclerc, Anna Scaife, Benjamin Shaw, Hannah Stacey, and Charlie Walker. The Jodcast, November 2015, Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Benjamin Shaw and I'm with Hannah Stacey and Monique Henson. Hello. Hi. Hello. In the show this time, we interview Dr. Tom Broadhurst about cold dark matter in galaxy clusters, and Dr. Anna Scaife answers your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, Charlie interviews Simon Rookyard about the three Ps, pulsars, polarisation and porridge, in this month's Jodbite. Today I'm joined by a very special guest, Simon Rookyard, for the Jodbite. Welcome to the Jodcast. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, in two words... Why would you guess you are here? Um, brains and beauty. <laughs> Both are true. Uh, but they weren't the two words I was looking for. Could you guess again? Um, possibly pulsars might yes, be one of them. That is one of them. Yes, excellent. So you're a pulsar astronomer. I am indeed. Uh, and a PhD student at the University of Manchester. Yeah. So could you very quickly give us a brief overview of what pulsars are? Because we've, um, we've heard about them uh, over the last two months, I think. We've heard that you can use them to detect gravitational waves and that you can use them to look at accretion and that sort of thing. Um, and then could you tell us why so many people look at pulsars and study them in such different ways? Well, very simply, and uh, you get a neutron star when you take a medium mass, ordinary star, maybe about five to eight solar masses, and then it undergoes a supernova explosion at the end of its normal life, and the core region collapses down into a ball of neutrons, basically. Um, I mean, it's very, very dense stuff, maybe about the size of a city, but with more mass than the solar system compressed into that volume. So they're really extreme objects. And pulsars are emitters. Yes, so we can see, we observe pulsars in well, all across the, the electromagnetic spectrum, really, most mostly in the radio, but also in gamma rays, in X-rays, occasionally even at visible wavelengths. And so, they a bit like lighthouses, which is why they're called pulsars. Yes, so we get beams of emission from the neutron star, and as the neutron star rotates, which is very rapidly, I mean, some, some of them can rotate with periods of only a few milliseconds, and every time one of those beams sweeps across the Earth, then we see a flash of emission, like like you would with a lighthouse. And uh, we've had two pulsar astronomers here recently talking about pulsars on the Jogcast. Uh, Caroline D'Angelo, who was talking about looking at accretion, and James McGee, who was telling us how you might be able to use them to detect gravitational waves. So loads and loads of people study them in loads of different ways. Uh, what is it that makes them so interesting? What makes them really interesting is that they are the most extreme laboratories that we have for a wide a wide range of areas of physics. So, as you just said, people look at accretion for them. We can use them to look for gravitational waves. Um, they are the most extreme electromagnetic fields that we know of in the universe. So a typical pulsar will have a magnetic field which is perhaps a billion times stronger than the strongest magnetic fields we have on Earth. And far stronger than we could ever create. Oh, much more so, yeah. And um, on the topic of these magnetic fields, neutron stars are mainly neutrons, so they don't have any charged particles flowing around inside them or anything. Or I'm guessing not. You'll see why I'm guessing this in a second. Uh, why is there a magnetic field at all? Do people know yet? That's very much um, an area of debate. Okay. No one really knows... 100% what is going on inside the neutron star. Mm. There are lots of different theories. So one possibility is that there is some sort of what is known as a dynamo mechanism generating the magnetic field, which is quite quite how that would work, is a bit uncertain because we don't know what sort of flows of particles we might get inside the neutron star. As you say, if the neutron star is made of neutrons then they aren't charged particles and so shouldn't generate a magnetic field. But then one thing that should be the case is that if you have a big ball of neutrons in this situation, then 
at any given moment there should be some neutrons decaying into pairs of protons and electrons, possibly, okay. which will then recombine at some point to form another neutron. Mm. But at any given point, there are likely to be some free charges somewhere in the neutron star. Mm. And also, well, some theories state that the crust of the neutron star, for example, might be a lattice of nuclei of elements, rather than it being a large ball of neutrons all the way to the surface. Uh, some people have suggested that the crust could be, for example, a, a lattice of iron nuclei or other heavy elements, which then would contain protons. So no one's really quite sure where the magnetic field comes from. It's still a work in theory. It is. But they are only recently, they only have recently been discovered within the last 50 or so years, isn't that correct? Uh, yes, the the first one was discovered in 1967. Ah, so yeah, almost 50 years exactly. <laughs> yes, excellent. Um, and the magnetic fields have a big effect on the emission of pulsars, and this is something that will directly affect your work. Yes. Uh, so could you give us a brief overview of what it is that you study and why it's so interesting? So... My work has focused on looking at pulsars at radio wavelengths and in particular looking at the polarisation of that radio emission. Okay, can we do some very quick jargon busting? What is polarisation? Well, there are two types of polarisation. I focus principally on linear polarisation, which is where... So an electromagnetic wave is an electric field and a magnetic field at right angles to each other. Mm -hmm. So in a linearly polarised radio wave, the electric field is always in a particular direction for that wave. So if we look at a linearly polarised radio wave, that gives us clues to, for example, the direction that the magnetic field is in at the point where the emission was generated. Mm. And do we know where the emission is generated yet? Is it coming from the surface or is it coming from just above the surface? So the leading theories have it, is that the radio emission originates close to the surface, not at the surface of the neutron star, but very close to it. And what is it that causes this emission in the first place? So we start with charged particles in what we call the magnetosphere, which is essentially just the magnetic field outside the neutron star. In the same way that the Earth has one. Yes. Uh, only far more extreme. <laughs> yeah. So within the magnetosphere, there will be charged particles which are accelerated by the magnetic field. And if you have an accelerating charged particle, you will get photons emitted and those photons that are emitted at that point are high-energy photons, so gamma rays. But they then undergo a physical process whereby they decay into a pair of particles. You get an electron and a positron. So those two charged particles then are also accelerated by the field, and you get more photons emitted and more particles generated. And so you develop a plasma within the magnetosphere and that plasma somehow generates the radio waves through some form of coherent emission process. Mm. So my my work is focused on trying to shed some light, as it were, <laughs> on, on the nature of how we get the radio waves. Oh, fantastic. And um, how, how long have people been looking at this? This is quite a puzzle. How long have people been working on this for? Since since pulsars were discovered, mm. so these jets, uh, these jets of radio emission, do they come from particular points on the star? I know they come from either end of the neutron star. Do they come from a sort of a magnetic pole? Or yes, exactly. So the radio emission region is taken to be around the magnetic axis. So we get a very narrow beam of emission over each magnetic pole. So particularly what I've been working on is trying to determine for a set of particularly young energetic pulsars where the magnetic pole is in relation to the rotation axis in particular and also where our line of sight from Earth passes 
as the neutron star rotates relative to where the rotation axis is and where the magnetic pole is. So essentially, which bit of the radio beam our line of sight samples. And uh, how many pulsars do you look at on a regular basis to try and work this out? Do they all behave in the same way? So I've been looking at around 50 young pulsars and there's a wide range of things that happen but there are key techniques that we can use so for example the polarization of the radio waves changes as the pulsar rotates so we see a regular cyclic pattern of polarization as the neutron star rotates which we can use to determine the structure of the magnetic field and also its alignment relative to our line of sight and also from how it varies as the pulsar rotates, we can use that to try and constrain how inclined the magnetic field is to the rotation axis. All these things affect the polarization that we see, and it's my task to look at the polarization and to try and work backwards to see what is happening physically at the neutron star. Uh, that sounds like really interesting stuff. And you're writing up your thesis now for your PhD, is that right? Um, well, I submitted some weeks ago. Congratulations. So thank you. So and you're I'm, awaiting your viva. I am. I'll have oh. my viva next week. Oh, good luck. Um, I'm moving on from something dense to something denser when I make it anyway. Um, can you guess what the other reason that you were commandeered for this podcast was? I'm going to guess that it's porridge. <laughs> yes. So you were recently crowned world of porridge making champion i was indeed in some some circles you might be seen as a, a bit of a celebrity i maybe sadly we didn't get our, the first exclusive interview with you i think the bbc snatched you first is that right yes they uh they got me before i'd even made it back to manchester <laughs> fantastic we should have been there with microphones ready so uh, tell me uh, when when was it that you well you first started competitively cooking porridge it was well so this year's competition was the seventh year that i've been to the world championships so um yes it's been it's been something that i've done for quite a while now so you're a cereal porridge maker oh um and yeah tell me about the, tell me about these championships how long have they been going for uh this year was the 22nd world porridge making championship it's it is very much a world championship. This year we had competitors from all over the globe, really. We had uh, four different competitors from Scandinavia. There was someone from Switzerland, someone from the Czech Republic. We had a chef from South Africa. There was someone even over from Oregon in the States. Wow. So it's very much a... Very much a, a... Coming from all over. Yeah. Uh, where is it usually hosted? Is it usually hosted in Manchester? No, no, it's hosted in a little village called Carbridge, up in the Scottish Highlands, up in the Cairngorms. And um, and the prize for winning is the prestigious Golden Spurtle. It is. Which we do have on the table right now. Could you quickly tell us, so what is a Spurtle? Because I remember our presenters were a bit confused by it and had to look it up on Google <laughs> when they first talked about this news article. Um, so a Spurtle is the stick that you use to stir porridge. Mm. So... Usually made of wood when it's not a trophy. <laughs> and the idea is that with a wooden spoon, it might be more difficult to get into the corners of the pan, maybe, and you can get oats collecting in the bowl of the spoon. So with a spurtle, it's all convex surfaces and it's a lot easier to stir the porridge <laughs> well. Excellent. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the competition itself? How did it work? Was it one day or...? Yes, so it takes place all on one Saturday up in Cowbridge. So there are two competitions. There's the traditional porridge, which you are awarded the Golden Spurtle for if you win. There's also a speciality competition in which you make something porridge-based. Okay, and did you take part in both of these? Yes, yes I did. We start the day with, first of all, a parade from the eponymous bridge in Carbridge to the village hall where the competition takes place. It's a really nice thing, really. You have uh, a pipe band and all competitors walk along with their aprons and spurtles at the ready. Then there are four heats. There were four heats this year. A 
five people each, and during the heat you cook your traditional porridge and your speciality porridge. Those are taken through to a panel of judges. Um, How many judges? Four judges. So your porridge and speciality porridge are taken through to the judges to be judged in mm. private. Then after everyone has cooked in the heats, the judges decide on this year it was six finalists for the traditional porridge. The speciality competition is judged just on what you make in the heats. Mm. But then for the traditional porridge, you cook again you in cook the final. Again. And the rules are, as to how you cook the porridge are very strict, aren't they? Yes. So for the traditional competition, you're only allowed oats, water and salt. And am I right in saying that you can only stir in a particular direction as well? Yes. So tradition has it. You must stir with your right hand in a clockwise direction. Otherwise, you will invoke evil spirits. Oh, really? Yeah. So is that an old tale from that part of the country? Yes. Wow. And you mentioned that this was the seventh that you'd attended. Yeah. Uh, and you've been runner-up before. I've been to the final the previous two years. Mm. This is the first year that I've won. Congratulations. <laughs> so are you going to hang up your apron and your spurtle now, or are you going to take part again next year? I've got to defend my title next year. Yeah, I like, I like that. That's uh, what I want to hear. <laughs> has anyone won two years in a row before? It has been done. Not for not for a while, so maybe I could do that again. Oh, here's hoping. All right. Thank you very much for the interview. You're it's welcome. Been a, it's been a, a great mixture of things. Cheers, Simon. Thanks for that, Charlie. Now, Indy interviews Tom Broadhurst about cold dark matter in galaxy clusters. Today I'm with Dr. Tom Broadhurst from the University of the Basque Country. Hi, Tom. Hello. Thanks for joining us in the Jodcast studio. My pleasure. So you've come to Manchester and you've given a talk on so-called light cold dark matter. Could you maybe start off this interview by giving us an overview of what your research interests are and what your what your kind of field is in terms of astrophysics? Well, we've been looking for many years at the phenomenon of gravitational lensing. What we've learned is that light is is bent by many astronomical objects, galaxies, clusters of galaxies. And this is, uh, is a relativistic, general relativistic effect mm -hmm. predicted by Einstein. And we've measured this. Um, what happens is that light from distant galaxies is, forms a kind of arc-shaped distortions, much like when you look through the bottom of a wine glass at, at a distant source of light, like a candle. You'll notice these long, stretched, bright images of the candle. So that can be used to measure the amount of matter that's bending the light. And in all cases when we do this, we see that there's a lot more matter which is present than you would expect. If you add up them, what you see in terms of the, the starlight from the galaxies, we know how much stars weigh. The sun, for example, you know, is a typical star. So we can easily see that we're short of matter at the level of about you know 10 or a factor of 100 compared with what's observed. So then the question is, what is this dark matter? Mm -hmm. So today I've proposed that we consider more thoroughly a wave-like interpretation for dark matter. We know that dark matter is not hot, it's not relativistic, otherwise it would have moved away from galaxies and smoothed them out. And actually, we wouldn't exist. Galaxies would not form. There will be no small-scale structure in the universe on which, of course, our existence depends. Mm -hmm. So this light bosonic interpretation is very much the opposite of what's normally considered. Okay, so just to give a bit of context to our listeners, could you maybe briefly outline what, what the current accepted uh, model for, for dark matter is, The uh, so in opposition to this new model that you're proposing? Yeah, well, the accepted model is one that you naturally think of um, what you want is a particle of some kind that's uh, heavy, mm -hmm. so it doesn't move very quickly, therefore it's not relativistic, and it shouldn't interact except by gravity. Okay. Otherwise you might emit light and you would see them, and um, we don't. So that's the natural expectation, and, and there have been searches for this in deep underground chambers that you will have heard of that become more and more sensitive over time, mm -hmm. and a lot of resources spent 
trying to detect these because it would be wonderful if we did. Also, the the LHC in Switzerland, the Large yep. Hadron Collider, potentially could generate this kind of dark matter as well, since it reaches now very high unexplored energies. Uh, in principle, then, um, by colliding particles together, you may notice in these collisions uh, evidence for new particles that would have to be stable, wouldn't have the usual signature in the collider. Basically, you would notice a lack of momentum. Okay. So when you add it up, you realize, oh, something has been created there. In fact, pairs, antiparticle-particle pairs should sure. form, right? So since that has yet to show up, and, mm-hmm. you know, despite all the improvements, has not, we've become more interested in what's called a condensate form of dark matter. Okay. Which very light particles can fall into the ground, the quantum ground state of, um, in the case where you have what are called bosonic particles, mm-hmm. is cold inherently. Okay. Now, it's a very, very low energy. Very low energy, and yeah. all the particles sh- have the same wave-like behavior. And in okay. fact, the, all the waves should be in phase in the ground state. Okay, so, 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 so there's a real-life sort of analogy for this between what, you, what are known as fermions and what are known as bosons, and so there's this so-called Bose-Einstein condensate. Exactly, yeah. Only bosons would do this. Sure. And as you know, the condensate, Bose-condensate, was discovered in, in the laboratory in mm-hmm. the late 90s, and that's, you know, quantum mechanically, you can n- now create such condensate. So that Bose-Einstein state of matter, I think it's sometimes called the fifth state of matter, has been verified, so quantum mechanically this is feasible. And what we'd like is to have the dark matter in that state mm-hmm. with a very long wavelength. Okay. So all these very light bosons would have a very long wavelength. The lighter the particle, the longer its wavelength. And in that way, we may hope to understand some of the anomalous features of cosmology, okay. galaxies, this internal structures, you know, that wave that wave-like behavior you can imagine may produce some very distinct predictions that differ from standard heavy particles. Okay. So it might it might just be worth expanding a little bit on this because we're kind of moving from astrophysics into like particle physics and maybe some of our listeners might not be as familiar. Um yes. but basically when you're talking about a wave function it's this sort of property that people are used to hearing about light having a behaving as a wave and a particle but yes. it turns out that a photon. Um, a photon yeah but it turns out that you can you can apply that principle to, to particles as well to, exactly, some, to, yeah. to some extent so this is why you can talk about the wavelength of a particle or the wave behavior of a particle right. so but coming back to to the uh the bosonic uh cold dark matter formulation so what are some of the problems with particulate cold dark matter that, that can be that can be solved by this alternative formula well you see the particle interpretation of the observed coldness of dark matter has no inherent scale. There's no pressure. That means that in that context, you can form galaxies of all masses. In fact, you would form many more small ones than you do large ones. There would be a hierarchy without any limit. But we noticed that, at least around the Milky Way and local galaxies that we can study well, there are relatively few uh, small galaxies. Mm The numbers of dwarf galaxies is maybe two orders of magnitude lower than predicted. Also, those galaxies don't have the expected concentration of dark matter that you would predict in in the case of heavy particles. They should um, not have any scale length, and so you'd expect them to be concentrated without limit. What we notice for the dwarf galaxies is that there is a finite central density of matter. This, you know, the straightforward analysis of the data, the motions of the stars in these galaxies, tells you that there are what we call cores of dark matter. Mm-hmm. The density doesn't rise without limit. Okay. In fact, it rises to a maximum. Okay, so, um, so, so there are some very promising solutions to, to existing problems that, that can be sort of brought up by bosonic dark matter. What what kind of is the is the next step? What what needs to be done now to sort of really try and confirm the validity of this as a candidate for for dark matter? Right. Well, you know, we want to test it to the limits, mm-hmm. and we obviously we don't really mind either way whether we 
you know nature behaves like this or not sure. right it's yeah, just yeah, yeah. a question of um testing predictions yeah, and yeah, yeah. um key distinguishing feature of this is the wave-like behavior mm -hmm. and that produces a, sort of a pattern of standing waves like ripples in a pond mm -hmm. in, in inside every galaxy you would have these long wavelength modes and then okay. we would notice that for example a bright point source through a halo of a galaxy we should see that its magnification is a bit affected by presence of these waves. Okay. So that's some work that in Manchester, there's a, a history of analyzing what are called uh, lensed quasars. Mm -hmm. And these brightness anomalies have been noticed. Okay. That there are bigger variations in brightness than expected. So that's a, that's a key test. We want to look at more of these in more detail. If that wave-like behavior shows up in, in, in that simple way, we will be very much more confident in this model. Fantastic. All right. Thank you very much for talking to us, Dr. Tom Broadhurst. Right. Thank you. Thanks for that, Indy. So you may remember from the last episode that we had a question from Stephen um, sent to us by email that says, I have a silly question for the Ask an Astronomer section of the podcast. I play Elite Dangerous, a game that procedurally models the entire Milky Way and incorporates databases of stars to fine-tune the simulation. I get to rocket around in a simulation in a faster-than-light ship and can go pretty much anywhere. Where should I go for a lovely view? Well, um, we decided not to put that to Ask an Astronomer. We instead put that to all the astronomers. So we put it on the JBCA coffee room whiteboard and left a pen there for anybody to come along and say where they would like to go if they could see anything up close. And we've had quite a few answers. We've had lots of silly answers. We've had lots of silly answers. <laughs> we've had some, some good some answers. Sensible answers. Yeah. We've had some extra galactic answers, which goes against what the question wanted. <laughs> which is not very good for astronomers. They should know better. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, we've had quite a few. Um, M45 was one, which is the Pleiades in Taurus. Um, a nice open cluster. I think that would probably rank... Um, that would be on my list of places to go and see, if I could. We've got the Orion Nebula, which is obviously a, a pretty nebula. You've got to go, to go to the Orion see. Nebula. Yeah, yeah. Sagittarius A star would be an, an obvious one. The black hole at the centre of our galaxy would be an interesting thing to visit. Mm, quite impressive, yeah. I imagine. Really see cool what's, to going, see what's on going, going on in there. Yeah. Uh, the Pillars of Creation, M16, a star-forming region. Bit of a classic. Bit mm -hmm. of a classic. Mm -hmm. Batley, which is uh, in <laughs> yes. Yorkshire, I believe. Um, there's uh, Simon Porridge Rookyard responsible for that. I was with him when he wrote it. Um, we also got the Sarlacc Pit from what's Star that? Wars. <laughs> It's the thing that the good guys get thrown into in Star Wars, I think. Okay. It's like some kind of creature. Sounds I think. fun. I haven't seen Correct Star Wars. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, that's what I remember. <laughs> okay, okay. I feel like I don't have enough sci-fi knowledge. <laughs> I have virtually yeah. no sci-fi knowledge at all. lots of sci-fi answers. We got, we got the restaurant at the end of the universe. And someone's yeah, been reading one. Douglas Adams. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, what's this one? If you can wait four years, the attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion should uh, be good. That's from the uh, classic speech at the end of Blade Runner. Um, spoilers if you haven't seen it <laughs> but if you haven't then you should because it's really good <laughs> okay so and there's one which I thought quite interesting and I don't actually know what it is but it says go to AG Pegasi and tell me what's going on up there and I like it because after that it says in capital letters I must know someone, yeah, someone is really uh, doing some research on that I think <laughs> confused. I had a quick Google of that. Um, it's a symbiotic binary and it's a, it's a close binary consisting of a red dwarf and a white dwarf. Ooh. So somebody's obviously really keen to know what's happening. Mm. Right, yeah. So, oh, and of course there's Tatooine as well. Which of course. Always a good one. Well, that's Star Wars as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Star Wars. <laughs> I know We've a little got bit. got Vulcan as well, so a bit yeah. Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> or they could mean the mythical planet that was supposedly in the inner part of the solar system. Isn't that... Oh, is that... I yeah, to that. explain the um, perihelion shift of Mercury, uh, they thought there was yeah. another planet um, uh, in sort of lockstep with Mercury, so mm -hmm. we'd never see it. Um, right. But it just turned out to be... Um, and they called it Vulcan. They called it Vulcan. Vulcan. Yeah. Of course they did. Mm. <laughs> 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 turned out to be just a general relativistic effect near the sun, causing the perihelion shift. So Vulcan mm. was, uh, was Sadly, removed. Never named. And um, someone's put love... Mm. I don't know what I don't that know. is. <laughs> it says love now, but I think when it was written, it was love, L A V E, and then oh, somebody just I put see. a little bit on the A, okay. sort of deleted it. Love? Love. I have no idea. It's, it's equally confusing. If anyone can tell us, that's good. If it's Please probably something we really should know as astronomers, yeah, but and it's probably quite maybe. embarrassing that we don't. But well, there we go. Well, if you know, tell us. Yeah. <laughs> what is love or love? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm a song following that bit. <laughs> 
So we had a few. We put this question on our Facebook page as well, um, and to see what the, our, our Facebook users thought. Uh, Martin Bancroft got in touch to say, "This question is a good excuse to look through online astrophotography sites. My favourite so far is M8, the Lagoon Nebula, which has bot globules and herbic harrow objects. So that's a nice little dark cloud full of dark little." blobs that are soon to become stars and would be a really nice place to go and see. I don't even know what a herbic harrow object is. Those are is. fantastic I mean, names. Yeah. Bok globules. Yeah. It's not my that. area. Just before a star starts <laughs> to form fantastic. in a molecular cloud, they'll collapse into bok globules. They're dark That's brilliant. patches of not very much, but oh. they're, they're just before they actually start to collapse into, into burning stars. Oh, I see. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's pretty cool. And I think um, Matthew Moylecroft suggested a Sagittarius A-star uh, not too close, but if you're going to go on one thing, it might as well be at the heart of the galaxy to see what's going on. Yep, I agree. Yep, absolutely. I think we should go see the black hole. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> oh, don't I get too close. Make sure it's there. and <laughs> <laughs> Just to check. Well, you know, we, don't, we, don't, we can only infer its existence, <laughs> right? It's we don't, yeah. yeah, we can't no. actually see it. Just so get let's close go to and, and just throw a clock in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And we also had Kevin Ridden, who said he'd love to explore the region of stars where they no longer obey Kepler's laws about rotating around the galaxy. That's where dark matter, which is made up entirely of aurorium, I haven't said that, said that properly, takes effect. So it would be interesting to go out into the kind of edge of the galaxy. Um, you do see dark matter. Dark matter isn't just on the edge. It's kind of spread throughout the galaxy and it's in this halo all around it. And some people do think you can see the effects of it towards the centre as well. But yeah, you do see more effects on the rotation curve at the edges too. Yeah, I remember um, doing that experiment as an undergraduate, mapping the um, yeah. velocity dispersion of the galaxy. Mm-hmm. You've got like a slightly horrified look on your face, like it's bringing back bad, <laughs> bad memories of undergra- undergraduate labs. <laughs> I hated labs at undergraduate. I'm much happier in front of a computer. Yeah. Give me, give me numbers. I don't want to have to deal with instruments. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> I, I don't know if it would be particularly interesting, would it? Yeah, I don't know if you'd see very much, yeah. um, because you wouldn't be able to see the dark matter and... You wouldn't even see its effects unless there were like clumps of it where you might get lensing effects. But even then, I'm not sure it would be that. You, yeah. you wouldn't notice. We, we wouldn't notice yeah. it that much. Well, Kevin, um, if you get a chance, go and have a look and tell yeah, us if it's it. interesting. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Come back and we'll write a paper. <laughs> so, yeah, Stephen, you've got lots of um, places to go and visit there. So, uh, yeah, off you go, I guess. Moving on. We are still in the planning for Jodcast Live. It's the Jodcast 10th birthday um, in January, um, and we're planning a live episode, as you probably know, to celebrate this. Um, We've got quite a good response so far. Um, If you'd like to come, please do tell us. We'd really like to gauge how many people are likely to turn up. And again, if you have any ideas, we've had lots so far, some of which we're actually um, implementing. Keep the ideas coming if you know how we should celebrate. Ooh, what ideas have you had so far? Ooh, we've had lots. You keep it, you're being very secret about it. Oh. <laughs> I'll no. find out in January. And now we move on to the part of the show where we talk about all of the things that we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. Okay, so my odds and end this month is about Fermi, which is a gamma-ray space telescope. And um, that has detected a sort of periodic emission of gamma rays from uh, an object called a blazar. And if you don't know what a blazar is, it's a kind of active galactic nuclei, which is something at the centre of um, some galaxies, which is thought to be a black hole, which is powering these jets and this very bright emission at all levels of the spectrum. So um, a blazar is a kind of AGN where we think that the axis where these jets are coming out of are directed directly towards us, so sort of face on, down the line of sight. So as a result, they, they appear very, very bright and they emit gamma rays. And this seems to be the first case where they've detected this sort of periodic cycle in um, gamma rays over this sort of period of it's a two year long cycle, I think, of gamma rays that they've detected. And the question is, why is this happening? Because we don't really know a lot about active galactic nuclei and what power them and what causes these black holes to emit all of this energy and these jets and things. It's all a little bit of a mystery. We're not entirely sure what's going on there. So this sort of discovery, you know, helps us try and understand what's happening near the black hole. So there's a lot of different sort of ideas as to what's causing this periodicity. And one really interesting one is that there are actually two black holes that are orbiting each other, which is causing a kind of procession 
in the accretion mm. disk. And so it's causing a bit of a, a wobble, like a periodic wobble in the accretion disk, which is causing this yeah, periodicity. So that's cool. So that sounds really interesting. We don't really know. Like recess but... across the sky, so you only see pulses, is that? Yeah, that so, so the idea is that it's pointed directly towards us, basically, or, or almost directly towards us. But then there is sort of this wobble that's for some reason causes a bit of a wobble in the accretion disk mm -hmm. and we get a wobble in the amount of gamma rays that are ejected towards us. So basically. is that because the beam is effectively sort of moving around yeah. our line of sight? I think so, yeah, that's what mm -hmm. I can gather. So it's all very hypothetical, I think. We yeah. don't really know enough about what's happening near the black hole to say what's causing it, but it's it's, it's very interesting, I think. It'd be really cool to be able mm. to actually see what the emission looks like across the beam yeah. instead of just looking down one point in the beam. If we could, because this thing's progressing, we can you actually can get a path it. around the beam and just see yeah. how the emission changes. I wonder if you can in gamma rays, though, because mm. I know I don't. So I'm not an observational astronomer. I should point out, but it's really hard to get kind of good resolutions. Yeah, in, I think it could quite astronomy. hard to localize. Gamma yeah, rays. And mm. it's not even necessarily a technology thing. Like it's just a, it's something that people I'm sure will actually be able to do mm. in gamma ray astronomy. Yeah. Well, I think they've only observed about three of these periods. I think it's mm. over sort of. Eight years, I think, they've been watching this blazer. Wow. So, um, yeah, they're, I think they're going to keep watching it and try and get a, a bigger sample and see uh, what this looks like over a longer period of time. And this is really exciting, though, for Fermi, because one of the kind of aims of Fermi is to look at things that change with time. So it's mm. nice to yeah. see them actually getting that kind of data back. Yeah. Mm. It's no doubt emitting gravitational waves as well, this, uh, well. this object. Set of objects. It's what we look for point. with uh, pulsar timing arrays and ah, black okay. holes, uh, yes. supermassive black holes coming together. We are, yeah. Well, we are we are waiting with anticipation. <laughs> the I'll get on with it. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing here? You're snapping up. <laughs> oh yeah, that's really cool. Um, so my then this month is um, about a paper that came out in the archive last Wednesday. So it's really really recent and. Basically, Simon Birrer from University in Zurich, along with some colleagues, have been looking at measuring the Hubble constant using gravitational lensing. So the Hubble constant is the parameter that describes how the universe is expanding. In particular, like, it looks at the speed of that expansion. And at the moment, the main ways we measure it are using other other techniques. So we use the cosmic microwave background, which takes the light from the earliest universe. Um, we look at how visible matter is um, changes in density across the sky, so looking at how clumpy it is and that kind of thing. Or we look at really distant supernovae. So those are the kind of techniques we use at the moment. But this is kind of, using gravitational lenses to it is a fairly new thing. Um, it's kind of been talked about for a long time and people are starting to do it, but it hasn't become all that popular yet, I think. Um, so what's interesting about this paper is that they claim to have used gravitational lensing to constrain the Hubble parameter really tightly. And what I, the reason kind of I read it and went, oh, wow, this is interesting, is because they're using it just by looking at one system. They've managed to constrain this parameter. All these other kind of data sets they use involve looking at the whole sky and, you know, hundreds of thousands of things and collecting lots and lots of information about lots of things. Whereas this is suggesting you could do it just by looking at one system, which is, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, so I should probably explain a little bit about how it works. So it's using gravitational lensing, and that's the bending of light around massive objects. Um, so a common, common scenario so you might think about is where you've got two galaxies along the line of sight, and when light from the distant galaxy passes by the intervening one, it'll bend around. And um, because of that, you'll see, you might see multiple images of the background galaxy around the foreground one. Um, you might even um, Those images might be distorted, so you get these kind of wonderful arcs. In special cases, you get rings called an Einstein ring, um, and it's really beautiful to look at. We'll pop some images of those or links to images in the show notes. Yeah, so that's gravitational lensing in general. Um, and we're talking about strong lensing here, and that's kind of what I've described. Um, so this technique uses lensing in a very particular way. Um, and in particular, it requires your background object to vary in time in how it looks. So something like the object that Hannah talked about, the pulsating quasar, would be perfect for this, actually. So in this paper, they are looking at the lensing system RxJ1131. Um, which is a distant quasar, so this active galactic nuclei, um, with an elliptical galaxy in front of it. So this quasar, the emission from that varies with time in, I think, quite a predictable way. And that's really useful in this approach, because basically if you've got multiple images produced around your foreground object, then to make those images, light has to travel different distances to get to each of the images. Um, and that means that the light arrives there at different times. So, for example, if your background thing emits like a pulse, 
you can see when that pulse arrives in one image and when it arrives in another image. And it turns out the delay between that arrival tells you about the universe. It tells you about how the universe is expanding. And it depends on the Hubble constant. So it turns out you can just measure this delay. I say just, it's not that straightforward. <laughs> but, um, I'm sure it's not. Um, but yeah, measuring that delay tells you about the Hubble constant. And it's interesting because this is so different to the other ways that we measure the whole constant that it's really, really promising. Um, and the kind of errors and stuff that come into cyclic systematic problems are really different to the ones that plague other observational techniques. Mm. Anyway, so they've done all this on this lensing system. They reckon they can get the Hubble parameter to within 5%, which is pretty fine. Like, I read this and kind of thought, that's... I, well, so someone said it to me and I said, that's impossible with one object. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not an observer, so I don't know anything about this. And I'm sure Hannah can fill me in. But I just, I never knew that was possible. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, it's like, ah, oh, haha, something I know about. <laughs> yeah, um... So people have thought this is possible for a while and there have been a few other attempts to do this kind of thing. But it's really difficult because there are so many variables, really. Um, so there are th these things called degeneracies, which is where you've got a lot of different solutions. So to be able to get the Hubble constant, you need to really, really understand the lens system really well. So you need to understand the, the mass distribution of the lens. You need to know the redshifts of the objects. And... Um, and that's not a trivial thing to know. I mean, the redshift is one thing, but to be able to really understand the lensing galaxy, it, it's something that we don't understand that well. So I think you said that they got some extra information about the yeah. lensing galaxy, didn't so they? The way they handle that in this situation is they've got some information. They've, also they've got some imaging data of the actual um, the lensing system, but they've also got velocity information about how the source and the lens are moving. Um, and I think they've also got the redshifts as well, so they can constrain the system better than in other studies. But it's still, it's still incredible because I think, so I'm kind of more from a cosmology background and I always think of cosmology as needing the whole sky mm -hmm. and you need these huge, ridiculous surveys. <laughs> and obviously this is still like a lot of work, but they've managed to do it with some Hubble telescope time, a fairly small group of people. They didn't need a collaboration of like 500 people. I mean, I think, I think it's really exciting. And, you know, this is kind of like a step of what's going to come from more and more lensing data, I think, which is possibly, I'm yeah, hoping. It's amazing they can get a, a figure down to... 5% accuracy yeah. with a single system, a single exactly. sample. So if they can do that, that that's quite amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily like fully rely on this because it's one study, it's really, really mm. new, but it's more just showing what could be possible as well. Yeah. Like, yeah. Is, is exciting. Um, and their, so their Hubble parameter measurement is consistent with the Planck data, so that's the cosmic microwave background data. Um, and yeah, and it just gives more and more support for our current ideas about cosmology, which is, which is always cool. Really cool. We were actually, um, we were talking about a paper on Friday, weren't we, in mm. Journal Club? But the people who wrote the paper, actually, they did the opposite of this and they assumed the Hubble constant to infer things about the gravitational lens system so they did the opposite so in the same case they had time delays between images but they just assumed a value for the Hubble constant to be able to constrain the lens system better so it works both ways you just have to really understand mm. like all of the different variables mm -hmm. have them really well constrained to be able to do it so yeah it's really yeah that's really cool mm -hmm. exciting mm. Cool. okay a little bit Closer to home, um, Mars's moon Phobos is slowly falling apart, apparently. <laughs> um, it's the more massive of the two Martian moons. It's named after the Greek god of horror. And photos of Phobos that have been taken recently show there's this sort of sequence of grooves going around the whole moon. And astronomers believe now that these could be caused by the tidal forces acting on the moon. Mm -hmm. So Phobos is interesting because it's closer to its planet than any other moon in the solar system. Uh, and in fact, is inside its Roche radius. Uh, now, the Roche radius is a distance one object has to exceed from another in order to not get torn apart by the other's tidal Ooh. forces. So the tidal forces acting on Phobos due to its proximity to Mars are greater than the inward force that actually holds Phobos together. Mm. And so because of this, because of this tidal differential, if you like, Phobos is slowly being sort of pulled apart. And it's actually, Mars is pulling Phobos inwards by about two metres every hundred years. And it's expected to be pulled apart completely. It's a lot, really. <laughs> it is. It's expected to be pulled apart completely in about between 30 and 50 million years. Um, so these grooves are actually stretches. They're nothing sort of tectonic. They're, mm. they're there because um, because of the interaction with Mars's gravitational field. 
Uh, they're just undergoing this constant defamation, and that's unsustainable. And mm. Phobos is going to break apart, and there's going to be a ring around Mars. Ooh. Which is so very, did, very did Phobos used to be further out from Mars then? It must have been it must to have be been. able to, yeah. to be outside the Roche lobe. Yeah. But it's before, it's and then yeah. have to come in. So must, something must have happened there, I suppose. To, yeah. It is orbiting faster than Mars around. rotates, which is also quite a, a unique situation. Ah. Um, so it's, well, uh, yeah, it's orbiting around. Yeah. Th- at the moment, it's about 3,700 miles above the surface of Mars, which is really close. Mm-hmm. So it could have been something that was captured, maybe? Or? Quite possibly, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's quite. I mean, Mars is you know next to the asteroid belt in there. Yeah. So it could uh, well be a captured yeah, asteroid. It, it's not circular. It's not, it's not a spherical object. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and neither is Deimos, Mars's other moon. So they're possibly captured asteroids. Mm-hmm. Um, so that might explain why their their initial orbits around Mars might have been quite eccentric. It's a um, shame we have to wait so long. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although when it finally does shatter, it's quite possible that some rocks are going to come our way, which might not be good. <laughs> um, it's a good thing it's a long way away. <laughs> but it's sort of it's into the interior is sort of be quite almost rubber like. So it's not really all that well held together. It's held together effectively by the skin. But did you think you get like tidal heating and stuff like that in the planet? Because you, when you, so when you get a planet stretched and squished by another one, it can like cause heating. Yeah, quite possible. I don't don't think there's been any evidence of um, Saturn's moons or yeah, and Io and and Enceladus. Yeah, they sort of heated up by these tidal forces, right? So, but I guess Jupiter's so much more massive. Yeah, Yeah. more substantial. And I don't think there'd be much residual heat in something as small as Phobos as well. So we wouldn't see any sort of volcanism. It's definitely a rock. Yeah, definitely a rock through and through. It's a of rubble, really. It's, just, it's a bag of rocks. Oh, poor Phobos. But it's got a horror. It doesn't, it doesn't need sympathy. Um, See, Mars' moons don't have positive-sounding names, do they? They don't. Like, it's, it's, it's the De- God Demos of War, Mars, right? Yeah, it's very close to demon, I don't know. Well, there we go. Um, so, yeah, Mars is going to have rings in a few million years, which is yeah, it's very cool. cool, I think. So is that how rings on other planets fall? I don't think well, it's all that well known of... how, how Saturn's rings came about. Yeah. Um, little bits of rocks and ice, aren't they? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, I mean, that would that would make sense, I guess. Things that intuitively, if, if something got too close to Saturn, or yeah, if things got too close to Saturn, got again. shattered and yeah. ended up forming a set of rings. I didn't know that. I'm, I'm going to have to look into this. <laughs> and now on to somebody who hopefully isn't cracking up under the pressure. For the first time, Dr. Anna Scaife answers your questions in Ask an Astronomer. So our astronomer this month is Dr. Anna Scaife. Anna, could you please introduce yourself? Yeah, so my name's Anna. I moved to JBCA earlier this year, in February, and my research focuses on constraining the strength of very large-scale magnetic fields in the universe, mainly using radio observations. Okay, thank you. Our first question this month is from Stanley Fertig. So Stanley has written, I have a question about the relativity correction GPS satellites. Is it that because the satellites are moving faster than us, time moves more slowly for them? Or rather, as I suspect... Being farther from the centre of the Earth than we, they feel less of a gravitational tug from the Earth, and therefore time moves faster for them than for us on the surface. Which is it? Well, so the answer is that it's a combination of the two. So GPS satellites move at a rate of about 14,000 kilometres per hour. They move really quickly, so they're not geostationary. Lots of people seem to think that they're geostationary. So wherever you're standing on the surface of the Earth, the GPS satellites are moving relative to your position. So for any object that's moving... A clock relative to your stationary position on that object will appear to be running more slowly. Now, the faster the object's moving, the more slowly the clock will appear to be going. For GPS satellites, which are moving you know, pretty fast in our terms, but not very fast in relativistic terms, there's a small correction of about seven microseconds. So we would appear to see the clocks on GPS satellites running seven microseconds too slow. Now, the other consideration is that they are further from the Earth than we are. So this is where the general relativity correction comes in. So general relativity tells us that clocks appearing closer to a point mass, to the the centre of a mass, will appear to be running more slowly than those that are further away because of the way that space-time is curved. And so GPS satellites, which orbit at a height of about 20,000 kilometres above the surface of the Earth, will appear to therefore be going faster than they would on the surface of the Earth, relative to our stationary position closer to the centre of the Earth. That's actually a larger effect than the velocity correction. So the general relativity correction caused by the mass of the Earth is about 45 microseconds, and it goes in the opposite direction. So general relativity makes them seem to be going too fast, and special relativity makes them seem to be going too slow. And what you get is basically the difference of those two things. So the difference is 38 microseconds. Now, 38 microseconds is pretty small, but in order to get the positional accuracy that you need from GPS on the surface of the Earth, you need a temporal accuracy of about 20 to 30 nanoseconds. So that correction is really quite 
quite large in terms of the, the required accuracy. And so what people do, in fact, what the people who build the GPS satellites do, is they correct for the general relativistic term, the larger term, simply by slowing down the actual clocks on the satellites. If you want to correct for the special relativity term, that's done at the base stations on the Earth. So if you're building a GPS receiver, you have to take that correction into account yourself. Thank you. Okay, our second question comes from Matthew Wilde. It's been about 100 years since Marconi started transmitting radio signals. Roughly how many stars are within the 100 light year bubble and thusly can be detected? I guess Gaia or Hipparchos data would tell us, but can't find it anywhere. So Marconi claimed to have made the first transatlantic transmission in 1901. And in fact, at the time, no one believed him. And it wasn't until a year later that he managed to make a, a verified transmission in 1902. So it has been about 110, 115 years. Now, where that transmission is now is a difficult question. So if it had been radiating out from the Earth into space, I guess the question is asking whether alien life forms could detect Marconi's signal within a, a bubble of 100 light years. If it was radiating out from the Earth, then firstly, it would be very weak by now. So the power of a radio signal is conserved over the surface area at which it expands. It's called the 1 over R squared law, which means that the original power that Marconi transmitted from the Earth would now be divided by the surface area of a sphere with a radius of 100 light years. So it would be tiny. In order to detect it, you'd need a massively sensitive detector, which may not be possible. However, that's if it managed to transmit into space. In reality the signal probably didn't go anywhere. So Marconi used radio receivers that worked at very low radio frequencies, sort of hundreds of kilohertz to about a megahertz. And for signals like that, the Earth's ionosphere gets in the way. So there are two ways in which this happens. The first way is that the ionosphere can directly absorb signals. Now, the ionosphere is an area of the atmosphere which extends from about 60 kilometres above the surface of the Earth to about 100 kilometres above the surface of the Earth sorry, extends to about a thousand kilometres above the surface of the Earth. But the lowest level of the ionosphere, which is called the D region, extends up to about 100 kilometres. And it's in the D region that radio signals get absorbed. And the reason this happens is that the D region is, it's actually the most poorly understood region of the ionosphere, but it's very chemically rich and it contains a lot of neutral species. And so when the electrons, which populate the ionosphere, interact with these species that absorbs the radio waves. So when a radio wave hits an electron in the ionosphere, it causes the electron to either re-emit or transmit that energy somewhere else. So if the energy gets re-emitted, then it can keep propagating. But what happens in the D region is because there are so many neutral atoms, the electrons tend to hit the neutral atoms and the energy gets dissipated in the collision. And so it just gets lost. So if Marconi made his transmissions during the day, it's very likely that they would just be absorbed by the ionosphere if they were travelling anywhere towards leaving the Earth. During the night, they might have made it through the D region, but they then would have got reflected by the higher levels of the ionosphere. So the, the critical frequencies at which the ionosphere transmits radiation are above 6 to 10 megahertz. So basically any radiation that has a frequency below that gets reflected back down to the Earth. And any radiation that has a frequency above that is allowed to pass through, perhaps on a, a rather refracted path. But for Marconi's transmissions at about a megahertz, they were either absorbed or reflected. OK, thank you. So we're not likely to have many questions from extraterrestrial listeners anytime soon. No. Also, I think that Marconi only transmitted the Morse code for the letter S in his original tests. So I think that would be a rather enigmatic message to send out to <laughs> alien life. <laughs> Slightly disappointing, but oh well. <laughs> yeah. Our final question comes from Russ Jenkins. It gets hotter the nearer you dig to the centre of the Earth. Is the same true for Mars? Can Mars colonists keep warm and safe from radiation by digging down into the ground? This is an interesting question, and it's something that we actually think we might know the answer to, but we can't verify it at the moment. So we think that the centre of Mars is hotter than the surface, in the same way that the, the centre of the Earth is very hot, but we don't know that for certain. The way in which we could test it would be by looking at the propagation of seismic waves through Mars, but we haven't got the equipment to do that yet. There were some experiments done by a, a group in Switzerland who compressed basically molten iron to the, the temperature and pressure that would be expected at the centre of Mars to see if it remained liquid and very hot. And they concluded that it would do, given that the sulphur content was above a certain value, which was about 10%. 
So under certain circumstances, we think that the, the centre of Mars is very hot and molten, but the absolute answer is that we, we don't know at the moment. Thank you very much for your time, Anna. Thank you. Thanks for that, James and Anna. Now on to the feedback. Uh, so we've got a couple of postcards, which is great. I've got one here. It seems to be from Australia. And I've got a beautiful picture of a, a time lapse of some stars around the South Pole, I suppose, if it's Australia, in front of a, a train track. I'll have a little read of it for you. Um, hello, Jodcasters. Greetings from the colonies. I've been listening to the Jodcast for six months and I'm enjoying it immensely. The extra shows help, me, uh, help to make the wait for next month's shows less of a stretch. Haratina, Southern Sky Update, is a highlight for me each month because of her enthusiasm, helpful calendar info and her wonderful facts about Maori culture and astronomy. The photo on the front of the card is a time-lapse that I shot south of Sydney where I live. I hope that some of you and your Northern Hemisphere listeners can get down to see the wonderful Southern Sky sometime soon. All the best! And a hearty jod on from me, Doug Ingram, Sydney, Australia. And you can follow him on Instagram at Nightscapades. Well, thanks for that, um, Doug. It's a very cool picture. It would yeah, be nice as well if we can get funding for a Jodcast strip, trip to Australia. Yeah, Ooh, and a lovely I'd, I'd positive feedback as well. We <laughs> yeah. love some positive feedback. <laughs> thanks a lot. Yeah, really appreciate it. I can go up on the wall. Yep. yep. <laughs> uh, we got another one this month from La Palma in Tenerife. Um, and it's got a lovely photo on the front of the mountains covered in snow, um, and it's like above the clouds and everything. It's really picturesque. Oh, you can see the, the um, your telescopes as well. Getting me in the mood for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> it's not too long yeah. away now. No, it's not. <laughs> really pretty. Um, and it says, Dear Jodcasters, I know how much you'd like to get mail, so I thought I'd send you this one from La Palma. I just missed the exhibition on 30 Years of Astronomy at the Rock de los Muchachos. There was no snow there yesterday. It was hot and dry. Um, the snow only lasts a few days. Now, back to my barraquito. Jot on from Mark. Mm. Excellent. Uh, yes, yeah. we do love getting mail. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, always, <laughs> always. Thank you very much. That's lovely. And, yep, yeah, another one for the wall. Mm. Mark Shaw has emailed us. Um, now, Mark um, maintains our Flickr group, um, which is nice. Um, and he's got in touch with us about Judcast Live, actually. Um, and he gives us a bit of a rundown of, of what it was like at the last one, which none of us were were actually at, because none of us were here at the time. And he says the following. Now, it was a few years back when I attended the Jodcast Live event, but these are the things I can remember. Unfortunately, Dr Tim O'Brien was not a well man that night, and it was mentioned that there was a football match of his favourite team, but the Jodcast assured me that it was just a coincidence. (laughs) Yeah. We had a great interview from Dr Nick Rattenbury with the Astronomer Royal at the time, Sir Francis Graham Smith, and then Dr Stuart Lowe turned the tables on Nick from interviewer to interviewee. We all took part in the panto. Oh, yes, we did. (laughs) (laughs) Dr Chris Lintock gave a fascinating talk about citizen science and how it's the future. I took the group photos and met most of the team through the evening. My Jod mug is still used for tea. I want a Jod mug. I want a Jod mug. Could do with a T-shirt now for the 10th year of the Jodcast. And a T-shirt. Ooh, get T-shirts. Look forward to seeing you all soon. Jod on. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks uh, for that. Hopefully you will be at the next event. Mm-hmm. And you can take photos again. Mm-hmm. Uh, Colin Stenning also got in touch to say he was enthralled by the enchanting story of the southern night sky from Haratina Mogashanu, which I hadn't heard since junior school, which is nice. So we're getting a lot of That's really lovely. good feedback for Haratina. She's yeah. becoming mm-hmm. quite popular yeah. even with the Northern Hemisphere listeners. <laughs> Uh, and on Facebook, we've had a message from Philip LaRiche. Your interview with Sir Bernard on the Jodcast, probably a good five or six years ago, was the most memorable ever. Is it still available? And he replied to himself, yes, and with a link. <laughs> so you can find that if you like. Um, there is a link to it. Um, we still do have the interview with Sir Bernard on there. So go and have a listen. Might be quite nice to follow up after there's going to be that BBC programme about Dredgel Bank and the yeah. Space Race. Oh, so right. you can follow up after that programme with the Bernard Lovell podcast yeah. episode. Mm. Um, so we also heard from Steve Lawrence, um, who said, really enjoyed the roundtable discussion by the presenters during the most recent episode. Plenty of evidence of lateral thinking and very funny. <laughs> I can't remember what we're talking about now, but... Well, we try <laughs> our Clearly best. Clearly works. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Whatever works. And thanks for all the likes and shares. And also thanks for all the follows and retweets on Twitter. We'd also like you to add us to your Christmas card list. If you're sending out Christmas cards this year, do consider the Jodcast. You know how much we like mail, so we'd like a nice big post bag to open and go through at Christmas. And we'll hopefully try and put, if we do get um, lots of Christmas cards, try and put them on the website so everybody can see what we get. 
You can also find us on iTunes. Please rate and review us, as we've had no reviews since 2013. Oh, feeling a bit lonely. Yeah, yeah. give us some nice reviews, please. Yes, that yes. would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. Flickr at flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. Thanks to Dr. Tom Broadhurst and Simon Rookyard for the interviews. The editors were Charlie Walker, Christina Illy, Niall McCallum and Damien Trin. The producer was Benjamin Shaw. Until next time, jod on! on.